Welcome to Save What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. Today's episode is fantastic. It is with a dear friend of mine, Emma Frisch, who lives in Ithaca, New York. She's an author. She is an entrepreneur. She owns a glamping, gorgeous facility outside of Ithaca with her husband, Bobby. She's a mom with two young girls. She's working on a brand new daily living book with a partner. Uh, She does it all. And it's all centered around wild and wild food. And I can't wait for you to get to know Emma if you don't know her already. And check out this week's podcast. It's a wonderful conversation. Also, if you are into this podcast, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and writing us a review. It tremendously helps us get visibility out in the podcast universe. And if you're looking for summer grilling with wild salmon from Bristol Bay, the most regenerative, sustainable fishery on earth, just head on over to avaswild.com and order yourself up a salmon summer grilling experience kit. You'll love it. I promise. There are uh, copies of the wild and the breach. There's VR goggles with a VR experience of going to Bristol Bay. There's Tom Douglas salmon rub inside of it. It's a, it's a great way to get tuned into Bristol Bay and to feed your family. All right. With that, enjoy this week's conversation with Emma Frisch, and we'll see you next time. Emma Frisch, welcome. Mark Titus, thank you. (laughs) Where are you coming from today? I am broadcasting from Freeville, New York, which is a little village outside of Ithaca, New York. Cool. Well, um, and I know you've you've recently moved into this beautiful new place in some somewhat in the country. And uh, how's how's that been during this whole crazy time? <laughs> it's amazing. We, um, you know, I've been living in a house right in downtown Ithaca, and Ithaca it's a city. It's not like New York City, so we still had access to trails and all sorts of wilderness outside our back door. And we were also on a road where tractor trailers passed daily and my kitchen was like a tiny closet. Um, So yeah, the universe answered our call for a spacious home with an incredible kitchen on land. And we're just, I mean, I'm pinching myself every day that we're in this place. We're surrounded by wildlife and um, you know, those gardens that I'm just watching the weeds grow because we just moved in and I can't even figure out how to manage them yet. But at the same time, there's just wild food dripping off every plant around me. And I just feel so cared for in this place. I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for being here. Well, it's congratulations. It's super exciting. I can't wait to, to see it one day. And you said two words just now, wild and food. And I know both of those things Well, they factor into both of our lives tremendously, but in your life in particular, your 
mission, your work, your calling has centered greatly around those two things. Can you tell us your story and how you came to grow into and love the work that you do? Sure. How much of the story do you want to hear? I'd say just let it go. Let's let's right. let's take take whatever you're giving out today. I'll let it rip. So my story starts around food when I well, I'll go back as far as being in the womb. Um yeah, my mom, I'm an identical twin and my mom talks a lot about the food that she ate when she was pregnant with us, especially ice cream, gelato in particular. She's Italian. And she was in LA at the time when she was pregnant with us. So that was a daily, a daily food source for her in the heat. And um, when I was born, I, you know, I imagine myself being in my mom's carrier by her side, possibly with my twin sister, hard to, hard to say how she carried both of us and cooked. But I just always, always have a memory of being in the kitchen and in the garden with her. And she'll tell these stories of how, you know, she, Dimity and I disappeared and she couldn't find us. And then she could see our little naked bums sticking out among the, the cherry tomatoes in the garden with our little red gum boots on, just, you know, gobbling them all off the vine. So I had, I had this passion for food instilled in me. It was, it was a way of life for our family. And I even, I recently went back and wrote down in an exercise I was doing, like, what were our family values? The ones that came up for me and my twin sister at the top of the list were family and food. And the best way to describe growing up was being around a table, a full table. I'm one of four siblings and we have a big family that is international. I'll get into that in a bit, but when they'd come to visit, it just would fill up. And otherwise there were always friends and family around the table with us. So meals together were really the cornerstone of my upbringing. And my mom spent a lot of time picking food, cooking food, and we were with her. So we would, you know, she would joke that when she took us to the berry patch, we were her crew, her unpaid labor, and she would try to see who could get the most pints, you know, by the end of the time that we were there. And then we'd all go home and make jam and pies. And um, so just all these memories of food. And, and for my mom, she's she's Italian and British. She moved to the States in her 20s. And she she really taught herself how to cook. Her mom moved to the UK. She was a war bride and moved there shortly after World War II. And my mom claims she was never really a great cook. So my mom, her mom wasn't a great cook. So my mom dove into Italian cooking and taught herself everything. She would go to the butcher and buy all the offal and, um, you know, learn how to cook cow tongue and all these, these things that are um, not, you know, not common here in this country and also hard to come by when someone isn't teaching you. Um, yeah. And actually when I was, when I was in third grade, I've been un unpacking boxes here in the new house. I came across a list of, there's like these prompts, right? Like what are your three favorite foods? And number one was cow tongue with green sauce. Oh my so, God. Yeah. Can you imagine? Wow. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, my, my mom has two brothers and they scattered across the world and married into different families. My, my uncle's married to a Chinese, Chinese woman, Luay, and my other uncle married a Jamaican woman. And 
all of their food has come into play for our family as well. Like on Christmas morning, we eat ackee and saltfish, which is a very traditional Jamaican dish. Um, and there's always pork dumplings. So food has just been this way for me of connecting with, with family, but also with people. And I, um, it just, it gets me so excited. I love learning about food and trying new food and um, really getting to know the plants that it comes from. So I could go on and on and on. I'll stop there. Well, I, so that is, first of all, I have sharp elbows and I, I'm going to find a way to your table. Um, that's just <laughs> incredible and incredible synchronicity that uh, the Sibs married people with very distinct and delicious food sources as well. And um, so you really dove into that food part of things. How does the intersection of wild come into your life and seat you at the table where you are right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really only been the past decade that I've kind of come into this idea of eating wild food. Looking back, as a, as a child, we did here and there. My mom taught us about onion grass and how to use jewelweed to cure poison ivy um, and things like that. But because this, you know, this land wasn't native to her, I, she wasn't as familiar with the plants. So she taught me how to grow food in the garden and less about the wild food. Um, but she, she was always, you know, one of my sibling and siblings and my favorite stories that we'd be driving in the car and she'd just pull off the road and whip out the, the, um, uh, scissors and snip, you know, honeysuckle from the side of the road. And so she was very much into collecting and, um, celebrating what was around us. But when I moved to Ecuador in my early twenties to work with indigenous farmers there, I started to learn a lot more about what wild food looks like and how to really use the landscape around, not use, right? We're not using the wild. They're actually, the wild is giving us these gifts and we're tending the wild in return. It's this mutual relationship and we're part of it. Um, and it's just in the indigenous cultures there, it's so prominent. It's part of the way of life. It's ancient. It's passed down through generation. Um, and, and so then moving back to the States, I took a detour through Nicaragua where my husband and I opened a small hotel there and again, learned a lot about wild food. I was part of a group that was blazing new trails in the mountains and offering ways for people to get out and explore the wild. And we put up the first rock climbing routes there. And on the way, the people that I was with would tell me like, oh, this plant you can use for this. And this is great medicine. And um, I helped, you know, paint my friend's apothecary and learned all about the herbs she was using there. So it was it was something that I had sort of relegated to a way of life that doesn't exist here. But then moving back to the States and to Ithaca in particular, I got to know people who, in particular, my dear friend and, and co-mama, Sarah Kelson, who has been my wild foraging teacher in many ways, um, who taught me that this land is abundant too. And we all have this knowledge deep in our bones. And the easiest way to access who we are is by relearning the names of the plants and how they feed us. And so as a chef and as someone intrigued in flavors and cooking, 
for me, the gateway into learning about wild food was to experiment with it and um, to feed my family with it. So yeah, I've just kind of taken off with that here. We um, we lead wild foraging walks at firelight camps, my, my husband and my glamping hotel here, and um, I'm weaving wild food into my blog and, and books and so forth. Yes, and um, <laughs> so much to grab onto there. Um, here's what I'm going to latch onto, though. How does one in their 20s start a hotel in Nicaragua and <laughs> with your husband, Bobby, and then how does that translate into the business that you have right now? Yeah. So how does someone in their 20s start a hotel? Great question. It was always our retirement plan. Bobby and I met in college and we loved to travel and grew up traveling. Um, His father traveled a lot for work and would take his family and my family lived everywhere else. So we were really fortunate to be able to visit family in other countries And so we kind of kept that up through college. We would travel and and take off summers and semesters and go backpacking. And then after college, he went and did the Peace Corps in Nicaragua while I was doing research in Ecuador. Then I joined him in Nicaragua. And we, again, like we kept dreaming about, you know, one day after we're done working and retired, we'll open a small hostel. And... And then like when Bobby finished the Peace Corps, one of his best friends down there who's Nicaraguan and owned a couple of businesses said, let's start one now. Let's do this together. So with, you know, the scrappy amount of savings we had and granted Nicaragua is a lot less expensive than the U.S., we managed to rent and renovate an old home in the city of Matagalpa. And um, yeah, we were really committed to you know, trying to make everything by hand. All the bunk beds were made by a local carpenter. And I was really focused on the food program. So I opened a restaurant having zero clue what I was doing, but I knew how to source food. So I went so far as to ride a pregnant horse at snail's pace, two hours outside the city to get local potatoes. Um, So yeah, we just kind of went for it and basically went through hotel school on our own for a couple of years. And it was, it was, fun and stressful and successful. Well, you are not afraid to dive into the waters um, and, you know, see what they reveal. And that is one of the great traits I admire about you. You, You've also managed to create and dive into the waters of parenthood, you and Bobby, and you got two beautiful girls out of the deal. And um, (laughs) you also had two young, beautiful girls during this last year, which was, of course, the weirdest year in the last hundred years, being completely isolated. And uh, how how did you approach this last year with two little girls? And what kept you grounded and sane during this whole time and moving forward as a parent and as a family? Hmm, so much to say there. And I'm thinking about all the people with small children right now. Yeah, this last year has been wild. And even though I know it's been incredibly hard on so many levels, I also, there's this part of me that feels like excited about living in a historic time and being able to see how this affects us, you know, as a, as a culture, as a society, as human creatures and, um, the, the gift that I see with COVID and what we have latched onto 
the most strongly is returning to the wild. Mm-hmm. You know, people everywhere who are able-bodied and who have their health, who are fortunate enough to have those, are going outside. And, um, you know, there's not much else to do, right? Everything's closed. And so it's been the same for us, honestly. I mean, we spend a lot of time outside, but also we were spending time doing things inside, um, you know, going to gymnastics gyms to tumble or whatever. And now it's just, no, the activity is being outside. And so that has been incredibly grounding just to be able to reimagine what we're doing in the home based on the seasons in particular, which here are obviously so extreme, um, and seeing what's coming into, into season. And, um, and the girls love it. Like there's, there's always something new to do. You know, right now the lilacs are blooming everywhere and we're collecting flowers to pour honey over and make lilac honey, but in a week they'll be gone. And then we'll be experimenting with the next thing. And that really does extend, you know, having come from being in the city to here, it's something that I'm, I realize you can do anywhere. You don't have to be on a homestead. You don't have to live near a park. There's wild bursting through the sidewalks. It's everywhere and it's all around us. And so having the opportunity to, and if you're willing and able to slow down and tune into that has been really grounding. I am so excited that you brought this up, finding wild wherever you are. Um, just yesterday I was on a, a zoom call and I decided to go walk out onto our back porch. We live in the city, we live in Seattle and, but we've got this little back porch that's all green and it's all, uh, surrounded by bushes and flowers and there's birds and there's hummingbirds. And, um, my wife, uh, Venka has made this just a beautiful little sanctuary in the city. Mm. And so I was sitting out there and, um, on this zoom call and there was a hummingbird just sitting on a little thin branch of this little olive that we have and just scoping me out like three feet away. And I'm scoping her out and we sat there for the half an hour like that. And I got off the call and got done being busy and um, grabbed my camera. And, of course, she flew off. Um, but then the light was coming through just so. And I started to notice these things. And I took some photos of, of just um, some freesia. And uh, we have a Japanese maple. And the light was coming through the red leaves. And it, you could see every vein in the leaves. Mm. And then, of course, she came back. And I got this one photo of her. And um, I... Uh, I put one up last night on my, my Instagram feed, um, of this and it's exactly what you just said. It is this joy, this delight, this wonder in the ephemeral and in the exact present moment. Um, you, you, you mentioned the, the seasons change, they turn, you're, you're using, um, this moment to, uh, pour honey on the flowers and then it's the next thing. This idea of being rather than constantly doing mm-hmm. is something I'm just fascinated with. Um, got to talk with uh, another wonderful visionary woman, uh, April Bentz, uh, last mm-hmm. week about this. What what have you learned? You've got so much going on. You're running a business. You're an author. You're a blogger. 
you are a chef, um, you are a mom and a wife and friend. How, how do you, how do you intentionally make time or create time or create space to be in your life rather than constantly doing? Cause you do a lot. Yeah. Thank you. I need to do less. <laughs> I love that story of the hummingbird and you know, that's it. Like I'm really, I'm a little self-conscious when I'm talking about like slowing down and tuning into the wild because I'm worried that I'm conveying a sense of privilege mm. when actually we all need to be doing that no matter where we are in our life. And part of that is, you know, we're in a culture where work, 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 like, you know, we just, our neighbor told me that he, he works night shifts Mm-hmm. He works day shifts and he was proud of the fact that he sleeps, he said, eight hours a week, a week. Whoa. And that maybe he's exaggerating, but that's like, that's what it's come to in this country is that we compare our, each other and ourselves by the amount of production and output mm-hmm. that we have. And I am interested in reversing that. And I think children are the best opportunity to do that. Um, I was recently interviewed by WeFunder. My husband and I have a, we're raising money for, to open a second location for Firelight Camps, which is our glamping hotel and um, wilderness retreat. And in it, it was all about, um, you know, celebrating mom entrepreneurs. And what have you learned as a mom? And sort of these questions that were like, I felt angled at, how do you balance work and and taking care of your kids? And my response was, I want to try to balance that less. Like I don't want to be um, working more and finding other ways for my kids to be cared for. Um, and of course, this is me, right? Like every every parent has to make their own choice. And it's not to say work is bad. Um, especially if you love your work, like we have this conversation in our house about how, you know, when mom and dad are quote working, they're playing, like we've figured out how to create work that we love and introducing, reintroducing this idea of play as something long-term, right? It's not something kids just do to learn about their environment and life, but it's something parents can do too. And adults can do. Um, so yeah, so it's really hard for me to stop. I'm definitely my mother's daughter. I I'm constantly moving, cooking something, pulling weeds, um, making art, type it, whatever it is, all these projects you mentioned. But I, I notice that when I can intentionally remind myself, I can put this down. I can put the dishes down. I can close my computer and just be, that's when the magic happens. And it happens every time, every time. If I, yes, it does. if I'm outside and I just stop and close my eyes and, you know, ask the question like, give me a sign or what are you trying to tell me or what can I listen to? There's always a response. It's a red-tailed hawk flying overhead. It's, you know, the breeze carrying the scent of lilacs. It's, it's something really tangible and beautiful like the hummingbird that we miss if we don't stop. Absolutely. It's the starlight overhead and the tides coming in every day. And I, um, I noticed in all this, you have 
and I've also noticed in your life from over here on the West that you have created and integrated these inherent parts of who you are and this passion for life, um, into a business. And, um, I've, I've endeavored to do the same thing over here with, uh, making films and Ava's wild and, and it's all grounded and rooted in this reverence for the wild, for wild places mm-hmm. and people that are, um, inherently tethered to wild places. So you've done this in, in both with your taproot to food, but also in this beautiful community that you've created with firelight camps. Can you tell us uh, how you and Bobby came up with firelight camps and what, what it's all about? Sure. Thank you. Uh, So Bobby and I, well, before we started firelight and obviously to this day, we've always been major outdoor enthusiasts. I was a pretty avid rock climber and a backcountry guide for a long time. And we, you know, over the years, we, as we went on more and more camping trips and like found ourselves around campfires with other people, we started to really get attached to this idea of getting more people around a campfire, like this timeless primal space where you rarely see someone on their phone, you can't snap a selfie in the dark, and you're under the stars, you're cooking food, there's stories being shared. It's just this, it's like a time warp that we don't experience a lot here. And so many people don't have access to that. A lot of people, you know, especially in cities, right? You can't just have a campfire anywhere. Um, And so when we moved back to the States, we knew we wanted to open another hotel and we wanted it to be really focused on integrating people with the wild and starting to break down this idea that we're separate from it and establishing this reconnection for for them. Um, And so um, along the way of kind of exploring what that would look like, still holding this this central vision of of like the Vestal hearth, the campfire in the middle of it, we came across this concept called glamping. I was a big jam band girl and got invited down to Bonnaroo to manage a glamping operation, their first one to, you know, to host guests. And so that kind of became this thing for a couple of years where I'd go down and set up these tents and go see music. And then Bobby came down and we started to say, huh, like, could we actually do this as a hotel concept, which is not new, by the way, it's been done in, in Africa on safari for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, it's modeled after nomadic cultures that have, you know, traveled using canvas tents for centuries and so um, we just love the idea of the, the sense of impermanence and the like minimalist way of building so that you're not disrupting a lot of, of the land. And so we, we started to research that more and we eventually decided to open a pilot with six tents here in Ithaca, right on the border of a beautiful state park called Buttermilk Falls that has an iconic waterfall. And, um, and we opened with this big campfire in the center and six tents. And we had a lobby tent with a bar and there is a bathhouse with a toilet and, you know, several toilets and hot showers with the idea being that this would be the gateway for people to come back to the wild. So, you know, for example, a lot of the people who come stay are couples where one of them is like gung ho about being outside and the other one has never camped and, 
they come and they get to sleep on a bed in these fully furnished tents, but they're still outside. The elements are still affecting them. Um, you know, they, they, everything recalibrates, right? You're hearing the rain on the tent and the birds when you're waking up and the peepers at night. So, so that was really the idea and, and it's expanded now. We have 19 tents on this site and we're getting ready to open a second location, hopefully by spring 23 in the Catskills, which will be larger. Um, but that is, yeah, it's, it's this total integration there of, of wild food, community, being outside, encouraging people to go on the trail, um, getting to know the wildlife and just tapping into to that connection that they have lost, you know, on three levels and, so, you know, in some ways with themselves, because there's not an opportunity to, to like get quiet and just be grounded in the way that there is when you're outside. Also with each other, again, like when you come, you know, with family and friends, you're, you're unplugged, right? You're playing games, you're telling stories, you're really tuned in. And then, of course, with Mother Earth, which is holding them the whole time. Well, I can I can testify. Um, I have been to firelight camps. Uh, I have had probably the most incredible screening or experience of uh, of both my films. Oh, we we did, as you know, a uh, an outdoor screening. Well, it was in the central. Uh, kind of lobby tent, um, mm -hmm. of the breach. Um, but you and, uh, Coley made beautiful salmon, wild salmon from Bristol Bay, uh, out on the, over the coals beforehand. And then we screened the film up on the inside of the tent yeah. at night uh, under the starlight. And it was magical. I have seen, um, Lots of critters in my day, but it was the first time I saw a flying squirrel with my own eyes mm -hmm. and uh, took the hike down through the valley floor and to Buttermilk Falls. And uh, it is exquisite and it is this oasis and it is this reset. Um, and, you know, for me, that was a, an incredibly transformational experience. So um, from one who knows, one who's mm -hmm. been there, highly, highly recommend as a... Um, as a means of waking up and uh, coming into your full potential. Okay, I want to go back to food for a sec. So you did a good job of, um, first of all, giving huge props to your mom, which she deserves. Um, but you've had your own journey through food. Um, can you describe what the taproot of your passion for food and the kind of food that you love to make is and how that led you to network TV <laughs> as if you haven't done enough cool stuff. Um, and then how that integrates into being an author. Sure. I am. Um, yeah. So, so much to say. I'm, I'll get a little vulnerable here and, and get real. Cause I feel like this is a topic that's important to share. And my twin sisters on a similar journey of, of, putting this out there a little more, but food, you know, I had this incredibly food rich upbringing. And then in high school, when, you know, people are basically in high school, I became anorexic with my twin, my twin sister and I like had this kind of secret closet anorexia and food was really shut down for me. And 
it was a period of time where I really felt like I was, you know, comparing myself to others. So, um, I don't know what the word is, but like suffocated by this body image that I was supposed to live up to. And it took me like what actually saved me in the end was food because Hmm. in order to reacquaint myself with food and also who I was, I had to learn about the roots of my food and, and how to prepare it. It was like, you know, it was like everything I had learned, I had sort of shut off and then went to college where, you know, you have dining hall food, which is terrible. Um, and it was really hard, you know, there's no kitchen. So there was like a period of maybe five to seven years where I wasn't really cooking. I wasn't eating healthily. I wasn't taking care of myself. And, and then I ended up, I had transferred colleges because I wanted to do a degree in architecture. And three weeks in, I decided it wasn't for me. And a a friend said, well, you're always talking about like your mom and Italian food. Maybe you should try this food class. And it was called The Politics of Food. And the first book I read was Fast Food Nation. Have you read that? Yeah. I haven't. I certainly know about it. You've got to read it. It might be a little outdated now, but it was, it was, you know, it was kind of the beginning of all those books that came out after like Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma and so forth. Right. And learning about food and where it comes from was transformative for me. A, it reconnected me with who I was and my upbringing and this idea of growing food, but also what I was buying from stores and what I was eating. And um, not to say that there's good or bad food, but I do kind of believe there is good and bad food. There's what well, there's food and there's not food that's packaged as food. Let's say it that way. And so once I was able to like discern that and realize, okay, this is food. This is good food. We are what we eat. I can put this in my body and I will feel good and healthy and strong. Um, I was able to develop this beautiful relationship with food that really inspired me to keep learning more and to treating my body the way that I would treat the earth, to treating my body as a temple. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's carried forward to today because as a mother, I feel like the single most important thing I can do for my children is teach them how to nourish themselves because that's like, you know, that's something that you can always carry with you. It's something that you can pass down. It's knowledge that you can can share. Um, and, you know, that's manifested in my work in a few ways. I, I wrote a cookbook called Feast by Firelight and um, it's my first book and it, it really kind of brings together all these elements I'm talking about with, you know, firelight camps and wild food and cooking over fire and how, you know, when you jump in and do it, and obviously I tell you how step-by-step step, it's very accessible, but when you actually get up the courage to do it, you realize, oh, this is in my bones. This is, this is part of who I am as a human. That is probably the single biggest defining factor of a human is that we cook originally over fire. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I've always been, well, since, I guess, since growing up, except for that lapse in time, been like a quote farm to table girl. And, um, I ended up getting on this show called food network star, which was, and, you know, seems like a fluke. I had been doing these videos on my blog and a cousin said, 
you should look into this show and apply. And I was, I don't even have TV. I hadn't seen it. And I was like, all right, I'll check it out. And I ended up getting on. And on episode one, I stood on this apple crate on a Hollywood set announcing, you know, to everybody and Bobby Flay and Jada and Alton Brown that I'm your farm to table guru. And I was like really seeing myself as this, um, like just the person who had to bring this to mainstream America, right? Like people need to know. And they just like totally shut it down right away. And the whole journey of the show for me ended up being about like, find, like what's my point of view, right? Like, cause that, they keep asking, what's your point of view? And they're all about gimmicks and how do you fit into this box of a future television show? And I didn't find it until I left the show and opened Firelight and started cooking over the fire. And that was where the intersection of food community and the wild came together. And um, yeah, and you know, it was there all along. And um, it was actually my agent who I befriended through a cast member on that show, saw it in me and kind of pulled it out. He said, you know, you're up, you're up there at your camp cooking over fire, doing these wild food cooking classes. Um, you know, this like he was able to reflect who I was at my core and and kind of pull that out. So, yeah. So much goodness in that, all of that. Um, I want to just, uh, first of all, acknowledge and um, thank you for being vulnerable. And um, so many listening can identify with challenge and struggle and um, recovery Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, th- this is a theme that, that weaves through my story, as you know, and, uh, and this show and, and we find ourselves in this unprecedented time, um, as human beings, we, we, I don't think there's a person out there that doesn't either have an issue of recovery of some sort in their own life or in, in an immediate family member or friend. And I think, on a macro level too, we are looking at a time where we are looking at systems that aren't necessarily working for us the way that maybe they were intended or, um, that the way they should function. And that means food systems, that means business systems. I mean, we, we're, we're still working on a very colonial kind of manifest destiny sort of paradigm here. And, and then we've got, well, go to salmon because we do on this show every oh, single episode. Yes. So we look at systems from Europe to the, the East Coast where you are right now, which used to be thriving and abundant with Atlantic salmon. And those are all but gone. Uh, out here on the Pacific um, side of things, we, we have watched this same pattern go time and again. Humans come in. They take what's there. They kind of run roughshod over it and then move on to the next thing. And the salmon suffer. The salmon are this incredible symbol of life, regenerating life, but they're also food. And they re- they represent business. They represent culture. They represent spirituality for the people that have been here for millennia before us. So you're on the East Coast. You're in this place that once was this thriving, abundant place for wild Atlantic salmon. I'm here in Seattle, a place that's sort of in this purgatorial place. And then there's Bristol Bay, Alaska. And I know through our mutual friends, uh, Elizabeth and 
uh, Kirk and uh, Steve Kurian and, you know, the, the folks from Alaska, you've gotten informed and from our relationship. Um, but why, from where you're sitting, do you identify Bristol Bay as a, as something that deserves to be cared about and, and to be protected? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's one of the reasons why we held the screening and did a salmon feast with all, I mean, we had a multi-course menu of products that people sent to us from Alaska as gifts just so that we could share birch syrup and wild salmon and all these delicacies. And the reason I identify with Bristol Bay and salmon so strongly is because it's one of, to me, it feels like, at least in this country, one of the last symbols of everything you're describing. It's tied to, like, you know, it's tied to food, it's tied to spirit, it's tied to economy, it's tied to community, it's it's in, you can't pull it out. What's that John Muir quote where, like, if you pull one thread, you untangle the whole web, right? It's that's mm-hmm. not it, but it's a great one if you can Yeah, relate. I remember, and I, of course I can't I can't quote yeah. it either, but yes. You find out everything's connected or something. Mm-hmm. And so salmon is, it's just this powerful, beautiful symbol of what we, what we might lose and what we can't lose. And there are few examples, I, I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, few examples in this country that are still tied to native culture, that are still tied to the wild and pristine areas that have not been ruined in some way or exploited in some way, and that still represent this form of nourishment on so many levels, an economic exchange, feeding our bodies, um, and yeah, and if we, you know, we can't stand to lose that, right? If we do, then what's next? And I, I was listening to this podcast with Daniel Four yesterday on um, Mythic Medicine Stories with Amber Magnolia Hill, and he was talking about how, you know, all these other people in non-human forms like salmon and trees and, and so forth are waiting for us to wake up from this bad dream that will destroy mm-hmm. them. And so I think salmon are just this beacon, this calling to us. And it's why I wanted to bring salmon to the East Coast so that people can feel that reverence and understanding. You know, now we live in a world where we can get food from all different places. And that's not working as well anymore, right? So as we move towards depending on the food in our, in our own bioregions, salmon shows us how we can do that in a way that is sustainable for generations to come. It's been, you know, the, the salmon population has been so incredibly managed. There's a huge community, as you know better than anyone, who's, who have come together to protect and work with this species and continue to revere them and really fight for them. So yeah, I could go on and on. I, you know, there's, there are a few, I, I would like to learn about more examples like salmon so that I can be a better warrior of all these these species, plants and animals. Um, but I just, I feel like salmon are really at the forefront. 
Yeah. And, and as someone on the East Coast without salmon, I, I, um, I really appreciate it as a food source. It's really important in our household on so many levels. And so for the foods that we can't get locally, it's important to continue to honor and keep those in existence that, that exist and can be, you know, shipped around the world still. Right. Um, and, uh, and, uh, coming from a regenerative and, and completely sustainable place like Bristol Bay, um, which is a whole nother topic, but, um, listen, you are a warrior. Uh, you, you inspire me with the work that you do, um, daily and, and yet you are human. Uh, just as I am human and we all have doubts and we all have fears and we all have insecurities and all of the things that, you know, um, hopefully we can continue to work on a daily practice toward, um, freeing ourselves from, but, you know, we're, we're in this unprecedented time of challenge, I think. And I think, you know, there's a few moments in the last 200 years, world war two and, civil war. And I mean, we're, we're in, we're in that kind of territory. It feels like, um, how, what, what advice would you give for grounding ourselves in this time of unprecedented challenges? I know you, you take time away from social media and from the phone. Um, what are some of the other things that are grounding points for you that you can offer us? Yeah. Stepping away from social media was a big one and it's not easy to do when you're running a business. Um, and I highly recommend everybody tries it because Mm -hmm. the single most important thing that we can do to actually connect with others is to connect with others in person. And I know that we can't do that on many levels right now with social distancing and, and whatnot, but there are other forms of doing it, writing a letter, having a phone call, um, going for a walk outside, you know, where you don't have to worry about being in a closed space and, and just getting back into conversation. I mean, the amount of time we spend on, you know, scrolling on feeds is the amount of time it could take to connect with someone authentically every day. So, and that's been a hard one for me. You know, I, I definitely have, um, as I became a mother, realized that I'm, I always thought I was an extrovert, but I was actually just trying to be an extrovert because I was an introvert and I love being an introvert. And now I, you know, I really have to remind myself that doing things like this, you know, connecting with you and having this conversation is going to fill me up for the rest of the day, as opposed to having just sat on my screen here at home and tinkered away at emails or something else. Um, But another one is to just get quiet. And, you know, I try to have a daily meditation practice. It's really not easy with two little kids. I feel like every time I start to get into a flow of waking up half an hour before them, they start waking up half an hour early. There's just this, like they know I'm awake. And, um, but I, I really try to take five minutes at least every day to just sit and be quiet and listen. And it's what we were talking about, that slowing down, Um, and also to be outside, you know, to find a way to, to just get outside, whether it's for a walk for 10 minutes, you know, short bike ride, sitting on the fire escape, whatever it is, that's incredibly grounding just to realize that while things seem on hold, 
or not the same in our daily modern lives, the world outside is still moving in the way that she always has for the most part, right? There's obviously, she's definitely crying for help with forest fires and floods and whatnot. And she keeps moving. The The seasons flow, the birds fly. So um, yeah, I would say that. And then um, to, to families and, and people living with others, one of the practices that we've been really trying to incorporate is after dinner, spending time doing one thing together. And that could be playing Uno, which my daughter's obsessed with right now, or going, yeah. you remember that game? Are you kidding? We play it all the time with our nephews and nieces. We have yeah. massive, sprawling, heated Uno tournaments. Amazing. Mm-hmm. These little ones are so strategic. Yeah, so, so that, you know, really taking time to connect. Um, and again, it, it, it all requires an immense amount of effort, at least for me, it does. Um, so increments, you know, thinking of one small thing that allows you to slow down and unplug and trying to incorporate that, you know, with a habit tracker, like checking off a box every day to see how you're doing and to really build that habit. Well, you know, one thing I would add, those are all Fantastic. And, um, you know, getting better at those, honestly, in, in, in my own life. And, um, it does take mindfulness, like to be aware of that and to track those things. One other thing I might add though, is, you know, in, in my recovery life and uh, my recovery community is the willingness to ask for help Mm, when necessary. And that is something that absolutely Mm. was anathema to my core being until I came into, um, recovery out of desperation. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people that identify with that, that it's just not natural to ask for help. We're, we're kind of as a society, um, instructed to go it alone and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get over it and rub some dirt on it and keep going, you know, and keep moving. But um, it's really helpful when there are people out there who have been there. There are people out there who care and have a huge heart for this and a compassion for other people to offer a prescription for help and for daily living. And I know you're working on a current project, and I don't know how much you can talk about it, but um, it's, I'm certainly excited about it. And, and is, there, is there anything you can tell us about how this prescription for daily living is now factoring into the current project that you're working on? Sure. Yeah. I love the addition of asking for help. It's so, so hard to do. And as someone who lives four hours from family, it's something I have to really lean into more. Um, And I'm really lucky to have a group of incredibly amazing sister mamas who, who do that for me. Um, So yeah, one of the ways, you know, I'm constantly trying to think of how I can be of service without also overextending myself because as a parent, our time is limited and I have limited childcare. So, you know, it's part function of COVID and part my desire to spend time with them while they're this little. So um, one of the things that I love to do that also kind of fans my introvert flames is to write and to create recipes. And I am working on a second book project with a dear friend and mother. And I, um, the working title right now is the seasonal family manual 
cooking care and crafts for living in joyful connection with nature. And I'm sure that will change. But this this book is it's a, it's follows the the wheel of the year. So it's organized by months. Each month has a general theme. And um, the themes revolve around earthly rhythms that we're all familiar with. So we're not going to be, you know, focusing on commercial or religious holidays, but we will bring in, you know, tapping into Yana and my, in particular, our European roots, um, like the roots of pagan tradition. So it's not a pagan book, but we'll, we'll be celebrating, you know, the solstice, harvest festivals, these, these moments in the cycle of the earth that we can all identify with and for which there are celebrations everywhere you go. You know, Halloween is reflected in Day of the Dead, um, Dia de los Muertos in, in Latin America and, and so forth. So um, the book will be, will have recipes for food in each month, recipes for body and home care in each month and arts and crafts. And it's geared towards families with kids and you'll basically be learning in a really practical, easy, and fun way. Like it's going to be playful. That's that's really the epitome. Um, how to incorporate the wild into your life and in return tend it. So it's it's really this idea of for those already in tune with with the seasons and with nature to just have more to to work with, and for those wanting to be to have this gateway. Um, so yeah, we'll, you know, we'll see how it evolves. I'd love, you know, I have dreams of being able to offer more around this topic through video and, um, yeah, just continue to like bring these ideas to life and make them really visual and, and bring them into people's homes so that it's content that, you know, children and parents can consume and, um, hopefully enrich their lives with. Well, we'll keep stoking that fire um, with that idea of bringing cool content <laughs> on camera into people's homes because I, I agree that's just a natural. And I think if you're listening right now, you would agree that um, much more Emma is a is a really good idea. Um, <laughs> you know, one last thought on this time that we're in right now, um, and and especially as a mom, you know. Um, how do, how do we keep hope? What is, what is it that we can do to stoke those fires for hope for the next generation? What do you find hope in? And, um, can you paint that portrait for us? Okay. Give me a second. Well, having just emerged from the start of spring, you know, I have to go back. I'm going to be a broken record about turning outside for hope. You know, we, in in this part of the world, winter is long and grueling. It starts at the end of September and it doesn't end until the end, eh, the end of April. Um, and Judith Berger is this amazing author and herbalist. And she says, she speaks of of winter as this old crone who, as she's walking away with spring coming, she looks over her back and cackles. She's like, ha ha, and throws another throw storm, <laughs> snowstorm over her shoulder. <laughs> and then they just keep coming until finally spring just dominates and flourishes. And I think that is, that's the hope that we can see that no matter what's happening, 
the sun always returns. It always comes back. And, you know, for those with children or without, but with children in their lives and around them, I think, you know, looking to the children is an incredible sense of hope. They, Mm -hmm. you can't squash a child's joy. You know, yesterday it was 80 degrees here and we had the sprinkler running and they're screaming and laughing and there's rainbows in the water and it's just the epitome of childhood and you can't take that away. So, you know, in no matter what's happening, there's always a way to find a sense of play and joy. And I really think that children and the world outside bring that alive. Well, that is a beautiful portrait and um, completely resonant, keeping that joy alive. All right. Uh, This has been spectacular. We are now going to move into the bonus round. So gird your loins here. I knock on wood as I say this because you've got a brand new house you just moved into. So this is not my fault if something ever happens. So I knock on wood. But let's just pretend for a moment your house, your house were on fire. You, you obviously you get Bobby, you get the kids out, you get any pets out, but you can only take one physical thing. What's that thing? Oh my gosh. So funny because I think about this all the time. And I was just talking to a friend yesterday who lives in like pretty dangerous wildfire fire zone in California, but I never actually narrowed down the thing that I'm going to take. Um, now you're on the spot. So you get, to, you get to do I'm that exercise. To what came up first and it's definitely out there. It's probably going to be my daughter's baby boxes, which ain't like, which contains their dried out spiral shaped umbilical cords. <laughs> I know I just said that live. Um, yeah, you did. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. You know, the cast horns will survive the fire. So I'll have those. Okay. That's, that's big. Um, and it's definitely not something I have. So that's a brand new answer on this show. Um, okay. Now let's call it your spiritual house. Okay. What are the two qualities about you that make you Emma that you would take out of the house that you, if you only could take two. Can, does my whole kitchen count? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking that'd be tough. In a in a few scant seconds, that'd be tough. But I'm thinking about more about you, like your spiritual life, those components, okay. those characteristics about yourself. I've got it. In my kitchen, it would be my what I call my apothecary, which includes dried herbs from my mother's garden and seeds from my mom's garden. So that sort of it's like the medicines that I've made and the um, the herbs and spices. And then I'm going to keep, um, pressuring you on this, on your spiritual side, like uh, the, the things about you, like your sense of wonder or your sense of, Oh, like not a physical thing, not a physical thing. Okay. We're, we're, we're we're diving deep into the metaphysical. You should have given these to me beforehand. No, this is the fun part about it. Watching you squirm. Okay, on the spiritual side, I would say, um, yeah, I mean, sense of wonder is a great one. I'll go with that. And my optimism. Mm-hmm. It is infectious. Okay, and lastly, is there one thing that you would leave behind to be purified in that fire? Hmm, my one. 
I think I would leave behind my shame and guilt. Amen. Yep. Goodbye. The whole world would be a lot better if we could all do that. Emma, thank you for being so raw and vulnerable um, and delightful. And um, we will do this again. Uh, there's obviously lots to catch up on. You've got so much going on and um, it'll be fun to catch up later on down the trail here. But um, I know you've got other, well, you've got a whole bunch of initiatives going on right now, but also I think you have a WeFunder initiative where you are offering people mm-hmm. actual investment in your glamping company. Um, is that still going on? And if so, how do people get involved in that? Yeah, that is still going on. Thanks for asking. So we, we have an equity crowdfunding campaign. So we're now opening investment in Firelight Camps up to the, open to the public. And mm-hmm. people can see our campaign video and all the details and financials about our business on wefunder.com backslash Firelight Camps with a plural S. So yeah, check it out. And that'll lead you to Firelight as well. Cool. Um Will do. And also, where can folks follow you and your work and what you're up to? Um, just give us the whole the whole shebang here. Sure. The main places that people can follow my work today are at my website, which is emmafrish.com. And I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes, right? So I don't have to spell mm-hmm. fresh. Um, and uh, there's, you know, over 500 recipes there if people want to cook, because that's another way to ground right now in these times, make a meal. And also on Instagram at Emma Frisch. Awesome. And I know there's at least one super killer wild salmon recipe in there. I've had it. It's delicious. What is that one again? Which one? Is it the molasses pomegranate? Okay, so there's at least two. Oh, there's like <laughs> 15 at least. Oh, my God. I, I, I'm partial to the lemon blueberry. Oh, the foil lemon wrap blueberry from, in time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From, from uh, Feast by Firelight, your, your right. first cookbook. All right. Well, um, sad as it is, we're going to have to wrap this one up for now. Um, folks, mm-hmm. follow Emma. You won't regret it. And uh, Emma Frisch, thank you so much for joining us today on Save What You Love. And we'll see you on down the trail. Thank you so much for having me. This is so wonderful. I hope you have a delicious dinner tonight. Thanks, you too. <laughs> so long for now. Bye. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived 
and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.